Good morning, church. Great to see you today. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament, to the letter of Ephesians. We're joyful to be studying through this good letter that God's ordained for us in Holy Scripture. Uh, We're in chapter 2, and we'll be studying verse 3 today. We very much um, value expositional preaching here at Disciples Church to take our time to preach through the Word of God and, and see all that He has for us according to Scripture Um, I want to read verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2 as we begin this morning to remind us of some context. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God's good and holy word. This is a bleak and sobering description of those who are unbelievers, those who reject Christ as Savior and Lord. Uh, And Paul's not done. We've only studied through verse 2. Verse 3, he continues to outline the reality of life apart from Christ. Uh, the, the physical life that we live while spiritually dead in sin. Church, it's essential that we understand these things rightly because it shapes the way we pray, the way we witness, the way we live our lives in these short days. And, and, the, and the way we hope um, for those who are outside the body of Christ, here today or listening later on the podcast, you need to hear this, not just with your physical ears and contemplate these things in your mind, but my deepest prayer is that God would give you spiritual ears to hear, to remove your spiritual deafness and blindness, that you could see rightly the depth of your sin, and your sin before a holy God, and see your utter need for the Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would repent and believe in Him for salvation and new life with God. That said, let's dive into this final layer of mankind's depravity in sin as we study verse 3 today. Paul continues, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of, of our flesh. First, notice that Paul says, We all, we all once lived this way. How can he say that? Well, Scripture makes it clear again and again. Romans 3.23 very famously says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are born of sin and dead in sin. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul says this really well in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. As I've mentioned in our last few sermons here on verse 1 and 2, we are all conceived with a fallen nature and therefore are born sinful. We're, We're sinfully, spiritually dead in our conception. Not only have we received spiritual dead natures because of Adam's sin, original sin, as our federal head, but we also are regarded as having sinned in Adam, such as the guilt that's put on Adam because he's our federal head is imputed or or credited to us. Therefore, we are cursed. As he is cursed, we are cursed with the penalty of spiritual death which is separation from God, who is spiritual life. We see another layer of what Paul is getting to in the early part of verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Our fallen nature, or the reality of the curse, is the first point here of Paul's early words in verse 3. Specifically that our passions are fleshly, He's highlighting the difference between what is carnal and what is spiritual. Charles Hodge 
theologian of old says it well when he describes our fleshly condition. And I quote, We are all governed by the things which are seen, temporal instead of things which are not seen and eternal. While the word flesh can and does mean physical body, Paul uses it here and often in the letters he wrote in a much broader way. He uses it to describe our complete human condition. Understand that he, he intends his listeners to see the scope of ruin in sin outside of Christ. That the flesh, not just the physical part of our being, but our entire being is ruined and corrupt in sin. This is an important teaching of Scripture that we must understand rightly. And it's on this understanding that we appreciate all the more greatly the beauty of grace and the gospel. Paul speaks well of this reality of the condemnation of our flesh. In a number of his letters, in Romans 7.5, he says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In chapter 8, verse 5 of his letter to the Romans, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. In Galatians 5.19, he speaks of the works of the flesh are evident in how we live. Those who are apart from Christ, the flesh is at work. A way to understand the flesh, as Scripture speaks of it, is it's, it's the ego. It, it, it's, it, it sees the emptiness, the void that's created in our sin and separation from God, and it looks to use its own resources and power to try to fill it. Flesh is the eye who tries to satisfy me with anything but God. Romans 8-7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. The basic mark of the flesh is that it's unsubmissive to God. It does not want to submit to God's absolute authority or rely on God's absolute mercy. The flesh says, I'll do it myself. This is the pride. This is the ego. In its conservative form, the flesh produces legalism. Efforting to keep the rules by its own power and for its own glory. In the liberal side, the flesh produces hedonism which essentially will do anything it wants to do in pursuit of pleasure. We see the different ways the flesh lives out. When Scripture says and speaks of the work of the flesh, why is it called it a work? Well, because the flesh is trying to, to earn. It's trying to fill the void with what it thinks it deserves or needs. And there's a harvest that that work of the flesh produces when it goes to work. Paul speaks to this clearly in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and then he goes on, they are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In these we see four basic categories. I want to take a second and use this as a tool, this part of the passage in Galatians, to help us flesh out our understanding of what Paul's meaning by the flesh at work here in verse 3. In this Galatians passage I just read, we see these four categories. First category we see him speak of is sexual. If your flesh is at work and you're yielding to it, it comes out, it produces sexual immorality. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek is the word porneia. It's where we get our modern word pornography. It's an all-encompassing word to speak of layers of sexual immorality. 
whether it be intimacy with anyone outside of the covenant of holy marriage, lust, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, child molestation, adultery, and on and on. The works of the flesh are passions and desires that are sinfully sensual and perverse. Another category we see here is spiritual, a false spirituality, a sinful pursuit of spiritual, which is where we get to things like sorcery or witchcraft or idolatry. Sadly, sorcery, witchcraft, we kind of have seen to be a little more out on the fringe of the culture. We see it becoming more central all the time in all the different ways it invades as acceptable and good. It's wicked and evil. Idolatry, though, again, sometimes you might be naive to think that idolatry is out on the fringes of the culture, picturing uh, natives in certain cultures or people in faraway lands who bow down to worship and serve carved blocks of wood or stone make sacrifices to these things. You're like, oh, no, that's, that's way out there. No, idolatry is much more central than we give it credit. Uh, question 34 in our Word of Truth Catechism gives us a good definition. The sin of idolatry is worshiping or finding hope or identity or significance or purpose or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. It's looking to fill those things, identity, hope, significance, purpose, satisfaction, in the things God created and not in the Creator. That's idolatry, and therefore much more central to modern life than we have given it credit. Idolatry means that we take our time and our energy and our focus and our heart and our passion and we commit it to someone or to something other than God. This could be for you a relationship. It could be a child. It could be a home improvement project. It could be a car you're hoping to buy. It could be an athletic team. It could be a band you love. It could be a hobby. It could be your education. It could be your career, your job. It could be your looks. It could be almost anything. The human heart is an idol factory in sin. The antithesis of the Christian faith is not atheism. It's idolatry. It is worse to believe in God and then to not worship Him above all else than it is to deny God altogether. The third layer we see here is social. The works of the flesh come out socially as well. And Paul speaks to this in the list that he's given us, showing us that it doesn't just separate us from God, it separates us from each other. Paul indicates this with words like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, and envy. When we live out of the flesh, it tears down our relationships. When the flesh is working, the flesh tends to divide people, bring judgment, criticism. Think about what that does to marriages, to friendships, to communities, and even to the church. The last layer we see here is personal. The work of the flesh produces a harvest of personal indulgences. Something that we often call addictions. Paul uses the word drunkenness. This is where the indulgence of the flesh ends up to lead to enslavement. To things like food, or alcohol, or media, 
or pornography, or gambling, and on and on. That we give ourselves to such a degree to something that it begins to master us. So it's not that we eat. It's that we become gluttons in what we eat. It's not that we have a drink. It's that we turn it into drunkenness. It's not that we have conversations. It's that we let it turn into gossip. It's not that you enjoy a cafe mocha for its flavors and warmth, but it turns into something that you can't function in your day without your caffeine fix. It's not that we spend money. It's that it becomes something we are absorbed in. We're consumed by it, and it mounts to debt that owns us. There are a lot of good things that the Lord has given, and we turn it into sin. We, the fruit, the work of the flesh, turns it into uh, an indulgence that, that we just it consumes us. It becomes our master. It becomes our precious Paul says this about the harvest of the work of the flesh, and he adds, I warn you, as I've warned you before, those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. Church, that we be serious about any of this that we've just spoken of, that we are given to, because being given to it means that there's a lack of evidence that we are empowered and belong to God. If you practice these things in an unrepentant way, Showing no true conviction, no regard of the Spirit to wreck you and to bring around you accountability. This is a dangerous evidence that you are enslaved to your sin and not to your Master Jesus Christ. That you need to be saved and set free. If you are truly saved, then what you must do is repent and turn from these things now, not later. The good news is God has shown grace to save us from our enslavement to these things. In that same Romans 7 verse 5, look at the rest of what he says next in verse 6. I'll read 5 and 6 together. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The old condition apart from Christ But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Notice, in the different places that Paul uses the word passions and sinful passions, this is again his emphasis here in the first part of verse 3. Look at it with me again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh passion here is lust it's it's an over desire a sinful desire it's an over desire for even something that could be in and of itself good therefore it's sinful the greek word paul uses here for passions is a word we've studied in our church often it's the word epithumia it's a word you need to know epithumia is can be both an evil desire, meaning the desire you have is for something innately evil or wicked, but it also can be an over-desire for something that is very good, therefore still making it sinful. It's an excessive desire. It's a desiring something evil, or it's a misplaced amount of desire for something good. John Calvin historically and famously said, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Often the object of the desire is good, and the evil lies in the lordship of the desire in our lives. So examples that we could relate to. Caring for your body is a good thing. It's a stewardship thing to care for your body, to nourish it, exercise it, to tend to it. But it can become a sinful thing, an idolatrous thing, when you begin to find your personal significance in your looks. 
the good thing of your career and working hard and unto the Lord can become a sinful thing when in it you look to find your security. The good thing of raising your children, your grandchildren, can become a true idol, a true sinful over-desire in your life if within it you find your purpose for living. Taking the good things that God's called us to and entrusted us with and then having an overcling in such a way as if I didn't have this, would I be undone? Is a great evaluation for our marriages, for our ministries. Church, I often pray that the Lord would ready my heart to not pastor tomorrow. That I, my identity, that my worth in this life would not be caught up in this position that God has called me to to this point so that if it was his call to take me out of the pulpit and purpose me to something different a new way that my testimony might need to live or go out that I would not be undone in the loss of it do you pray that way do you I pray that way about my children and my wife that Lord give me a right grip on them a right attention to them but but not so much that I would find my identity or my hope or my satisfaction in them. For you need to be the source of those things. You who is lasting and faithful and everlasting, everything else that you are clinging to, realize as good as it might be, is temporary. There is no marriage in heaven. Some of your kids might not be ordained by God to be saved and with us forever. We have to trust Him with all of that. It belongs to Him. And when we overcling to that, it becomes a sinful, fleshly grip by which in and with we lose that, we are undone in a sinful way. How desperate we are for Christ to give us, church, new passions New birth that can finally have a right grip on the things that God has put in our lives, not a sinful, idolatrous overgrip that we once had when we were dead in sin and knew no better. If you do not belong to Jesus, you are desperate for regeneration, for what is natural in sin to be converted to what is spiritual and righteous in Christ. Again, I say to you, repent and believe. If you do belong to Christ and you are seeing today evidence that you have become caught up in living in some of the ways we've just talked about in your flesh, you must make war with this and have no tolerance for it. Drag it into the light. Confess your sins to God. Take it to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue true and lasting repentance. Do this for it is good and right Stop making excuses. I promise you, as messy as it will be to repent of that thing now, it will be far better than for you to think that I'll wait and deal with it later. For it will be exposed. And you do not want your testimony to be one of hypocrisy and or to have undealt with sin by which maybe even your very faith is not true. True faith in God means repentance. It doesn't mean perfection, but it means when we see sin, we confess it, and we drag it in the light, and we do business with it, as hard as it is, as long as it takes. I pray this for you deeply. Look, let's look at the next layer here, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Church, we have to see and understand clearly what the Bible says about our fleshly heart and mind. The culture we live in, and potentially even the ideology of the very home you were raised in, school by which you were educated, uh, have taught you to follow your heart and trust in your best judgment. Here's the reality. We give way too much credit to the flesh. I, I heard a very famous influential person this week 
say to a very large audience, do what you love and don't let anything stop you. Oh, how toxic that advice can be. For what the flesh loves is wicked through and through. Parents with the very best intentions will often say to their children, I just want you to be happy. Not if their flesh is what's defining what is happy. You don't want that for your children, church. We need to do business with these things we've said, with these ideologies, with this, this way of doing life. We must see that much of this thinking is secular and godless. It is way too centered on the ways and the will of fallen man to direct or instruct and guide our lives when what we should truly want is to be instructed and guided by the Lord Jesus Himself. Often doing what makes you happy or just following your heart or your own reasoning leads to gross selfishness and sin it is this very narrative that leads people to gross sin, whether it's justification for sexual immorality, justification to cheat in education or sports, or just simply in breaking the law and business. It props up the priorities of man and it downplays the priorities of God. The Bible is clear in so many places, but a few that we like to mention because they're just so to the point. Jeremiah says it well. Jeremiah 17, 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If that is God's clear instruction to us about the the priorities of the flesh, then why are we telling people to just follow their hearts? Scripture charges mankind in Numbers 15.39 not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. The desires of the body and the mind are depraved in sin. Church, we're desperate for new birth, for spiritual illumination, for Holy Spirit conviction, for humble deference to shepherds and mature brothers and sisters in Christ. We're desperate for these things. To stay on our own is to pursue many times the longings of the flesh. Self-will, self-esteem, self-help are schemes of the devil in our modern culture. Do what makes you happy. Fulfill your dreams. Paul is clear to say when we belong to the devil as he's spoken of already in verse 2, we were dead in sin and committed to carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Parents, we need to be teaching our children that they are absolutely desperate for life in Christ so that they do not follow their own hearts and their best self-determined judgments. We need to help them see that they are desperate to see God, to seek God, His Word, and His ways to direct their paths and their priorities. We need to stop asking our kids, what do you want to do with your life? And start helping our kids understand what God wants them to do with their life. We are way influenced by a cultural norm more than we see that we are, church. We must see the depth of these things better as according to Scripture. Some of you are struggling as adults because while you love God and are saved by Christ, you're guilty of still playing out of the old playbook. You're still carrying out the desires of your fleshly heart and mind of your self-definitions of what happiness is, or success, or comfort. So it's impacting your priorities. It's impacting what you do with your days. 
the narrative you're often still guilty of following is what looks normal in the culture. So you're busy and you're overwhelmed, not because you're serving God, but because you're still committed to man-made agendas for what your life should look like, for what your car you drive should be, the food you eat, the place you live, the work you do, the commitments you make to the activities before you. What does it look like to really stop and consider? Am I carrying out the desires of my body and mind? Or am I carrying out the desires of my God? Prioritizing what God has called me to do with my days and my life, not what I or my culture around me says that should look like. Men, husbands, fathers, brothers in Christ, What does this do to how you are prioritizing your life? How you are prioritizing your days? Ladies, wives, mothers, sisters in Christ. What does this do to how you are prioritizing your life? How you are prioritizing your days? This can't just be a good point in a sermon. We must slow to consider what we are carrying out and whether or not they are things that God wants us to be committed to or things that our culture or ourselves want to be committed to. The counsel of mature believers in your life, I have found, is an amazing help to this. There is a lot of times that you can read Scripture, you can read books, you can listen to a lot of good stuff and still be self-minded in where you end up going or what you think you should do. I would go so far to say the uniqueness of marriage, you could even convince your spouse that this is the good and right thing to do. I'm guilty of it. And I've seen over a lot of years of my maturing faith the beauty and the help of good godly counsel by which Jennifer and I who I know many of you look to as an example of faithfulness and stewardship of life and days as doing good here's the thing you would be wrong to assume that much of that doing good is just because I'm doing well myself I want you to understand that much of it is due to the fact that we have a good and steady practice of inviting in mature believers around us to check us. By God's grace, I was taught how to manage money in my young years and never been in debt. And I still don't make purchases, big purchases, without running it by mature brothers and sisters to check us. Why? Because I can convince myself that this is the good and right thing for us to do. Put a nice bow on it. Or, or commitments to time. When the motorcycle club I'm part of has an international witness of the gospel, I had a lot of self-made reasons why when they asked me to be national chaplain, that was an immediate, of course I will. It's an honor to be asked. I had to tell the international president something he's probably never heard. I, I can't answer until I sit down with my elders and we talk that through to see if that's a good priority for my life. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't want them to say no. To the point where I was affected, do I really bring this before these guys? Maybe they don't see this for what I see it to be. So maybe I'll just make my decision over here on my own. And I'm telling you, those moments are so good to truly say, there's a wisdom in this plurality to check us and to, and to, and to hold us and to love us enough to say what we need to hear. I'm, I'm really, really blessed to see how many of you are discovering that in new layers and the fruit that can come from it. Let's look at the last part of this verse. Paul continues and says, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <clears throat> this is Paul's way of circling back to the reality of fallen man. That we are born in a depraved condition, dead in sin, our natural state, 
because of original and inherited sin, is dead in sin. This is not unique to one man over another. It is true of all of mankind. Hear Paul's emphasis. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because mankind's natural state is dead in sin, we deserve God's wrath. God's wrath, understand, is not a fly-off-the-handle rage like maybe you've witnessed wrath in other people in this world or life. Scripture is clear that God is without passions. He is unchanging. What that means is that His wrath is perfectly controlled and absolute and complete in its application of justice on all that is unholy and sinful. We are to worship God for His wrath as much as we are to worship Him for His love. There's two ways God's wrath is at work in fallen man. God's wrath is already at work in a general way on all of fallen mankind. We see this in the outplay of the curse. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and ungodly and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there is a reality of experiencing the wrath of God that is righteously due all sin in the fact that we are in Adam and a part of the curse in sin. The realities of death and sickness and pain and suffering are a reality that we all face because of the curse that is on mankind. Paul's point is that because of our fallen nature, our being in Adam, we experience God's wrath in a general way in the same way that all of fallen mankind does. Now, there is a degree of God's wrath that will be poured out on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction that God's elect does not and will not experience. Those who are not a part of God's elect, those who remain unrepentant of their sin, are storing up wrath that will be on them for eternity in their judgment in hell. This pouring out of God's wrath is not something we who are God's elect will experience. This is not something, as he says, vessels of mercy will experience. We who are his elect, whom God has loved, as we saw in Ephesians 1, from eternity past, whom he will save everyone and set free, will not experience God's wrath in this way. While we who are His elect, whom He has saved and now are in Christ, listen, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, we are not or will not experience God's righteous and eternal wrath because of what Christ did in our place. But for those who are vessels of wrath, who remain in their sin, who reject Jesus as Lord. Their destiny unto God's eternal wrath is the most horrible reality they could ever know. It is the most serious diagnosis they could ever receive, for it is everlasting. And we do not love those who are in that condition to not point out the reality and the weight of this. And so I I wouldn't do this part of the text justice if we didn't slow to consider what the fullness of that wrath poured out on those who remain in unrepentant sin looks like. Consider Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I would not be loving us well to show us the weight of this. Those who remain in their sin, those whom God has created as vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, who are guilty in their sin, 
that we have a full understanding and appreciation for his wrath in this way. Scripture clearly speaks of some of the depth of this. Those who will experience his eternal wrath, we see this in some of the descriptions of hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Please understand with me that hell is a just and right sentence. Condemnation on fallen man who is totally depraved and guilty of falling short of God's holy standard. The problem is way too many people in their sin think of the afterlife with rose-colored glasses. Even in good terms, to think of it as barbecues and family hanging out together and partying together. Very few really consider the weight of true judgment. God's righteous judges, justice played out. Very few consider the afterlife as something worse than they've ever known in this life, as it will be. Many simply cannot imagine God to be a God of judgment, a God who would impart his wrath on people whom they have dearly loved in this life. And in sin, we then make God fit into our narrative the way we think these things should go. To correct this line of thinking, you don't need to go, oh man, I walked into this church that's so crazy and serious about judgment and hell and picked the wrong place. I, I would just direct you to see the words of Jesus himself. Matthew 25. He gives three very sobering parables and teachings The first of the bridegroom returning suddenly and the women who are not ready for his coming are excluded from the marriage feast. In the second story, the servants, the master returns to settle his accounts and the evil, lazy servant is condemned, saying, throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the final story, the king separates the sheep from the goats, sending the wicked to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. According to Jesus himself, there absolutely will be a future day of reckoning and judgment, and many will be rightly condemned to hell as the wrath of God will be poured out on them for their unrepentant sin. What is hell? Well, just even considering what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, hell is destruction. It's total ruin. To be separated from all that is enjoyable and good and holy and true. Understand that when it says destruction, that doesn't mean annihilation, like vaporized. No, there's ongoing torment. Hell is not a place where people want to party It's not a place where the devil and demons torment us with whips. Those are man-made narratives. The Bible speaks of hell as outer darkness, eternal fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, a bottomless pit. It's punishment. Revelation 14.10 He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The guilty will be tormented in the presence of Jesus and the holy angels. But you might say, I thought Satan ruled hell. No, again, a fleshly, man-made narrative. God is the one who created the righteous and right place of condemnation for guilty sinners. God is the one who rules over it and keeps it going for eternity. But Satan doesn't rule. Satan's condemned. He's he's also tormented and punished forever. God's wrath and sovereign rule is what keeps hell going 
And maybe the most sobering, worst description of hell is found in the next verse, Revelation 14:11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. Two, two quick clarities that I want to encourage you with for those of you who are hurting for those who you know are in unrepentant sin or who died surely apart from Christ to over play the hurt that's connected to that can potentially lead you to a place to underplay what the holy God is due and what His good and right justice means. That we would not push that off to have a wrong response to His right and righteous verdict for guilty sinners. The other thing I want to lovingly bring up is just to encourage you, as I've done before, to not joke about or be casual about hell. Saying things like, what the hell? Go to hell. Hell no. Hell if I know. I hope you burn in hell. Hella good. If there ever was an oxymoron, it's the term hella good. Nothing about hell is funny or flippant. When things are bad in this life, to say I'm in hell is utterly naive. You have no idea. Many people love to argue, God is so good, He never sent anyone to hell. It is because of God's goodness and righteousness that He does. For you to have a family member grossly tormented with the worst kind of injustice and to have a judge go, oh, no big deal, you're good. You would call that judge a terrible judge. Not righteous. Not not good and right. The sentence is death for sin. Eternal death. The presupposition that God is good is correct. God is good. All the time. I encourage you to not just say God is good when things have gone your way. When things are grossly not going your way. You need to say out loud that God is good because it's true. His goodness is not bent on how your life is going. The conclusion that because He's good, that therefore He can't or won't punish anyone is dangerous and wrong. The Bible proclaims the righteous sentence for sinners. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, if we keep on sinning, there is only a a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Modern man despises and in many ways rejects the idea of God's wrath. You have, you have secularized churches popping up all the time that will never preach on this topic because they believe they can attract a bigger crowd to just speak of God's love. Perverting the gospel. Dangerous narratives that secular culture loves because they're bending to their ideals. Understand with me, this is another reality of fallen man at work. When enslaved to sin, mankind does not have a righteous fear or respect of the reality of God's wrath, but instead chooses to deny it and indulge in sin. We, we, Pastor Matt just spoke about it in the covenant, the Noahic covenant this last week. The very symbol of God's common grace Realize when he flooded the earth, all but Noah's family, that was a righteous judgment on sin. He's not some wicked tyrant. It's a right judgment on sin. And he would be right to do it again and again and again. 
but in His grace, in His plan to see through His grace for His elect, the covenant of redemption, He commits, He covenants with Noah, I will not flood the earth in this way again. In other words, I will give my common grace to people who are going to be utterly wicked. And the symbol of that grace, the sign of that covenant is what? The rainbow. And yet in our modern day, you have people doing the most perverse things in public, waving the sign of the rainbow. Their very existence to continue even to do that is under the banner of the covenant of common grace. And it's thrown in God's face. He is way more patient and merciful than we give him credit. That wasn't in my notes. First hour didn't hear that. There it is. I pray that we take God most seriously in the reality of God's righteous wrath. And therefore, we take church more seriously our daily opportunity to testify the gospel to those who are in sin and apart from Christ. I do not know, we do not know who God will save, but we know what He's commanded us to do, which is to preach the gospel to all He puts in our path. So let's not be lax or selfish to turn away from God-ordained opportunities to share the bad news of someone's reality, dead in sin, as Paul models for us again and again and again. And then the good news in light of that bad news of God's amazing grace by faith alone to be saved in Christ, to call people to repent and believe. Finally, I want to draw our our attention in a little phrase that we see here in verse 3 that I think is really unique, powerful. Notice in the first three verses, in the first couple verses, Paul says to his listening audience, you were dead, Uh, just talking to Christians, this was your state prior to salvation, and this is true, what Paul's saying is true, but notice here in verse 3, what does he do? He includes himself. We all once lived in the ways we just worked through in this sermon. How is it that Paul, accomplished as he was, counted himself among those so low in sin? And then what, what was his response to that? We, we see a really special insight into Paul's mind and understanding of these things in his letter he wrote to Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, 4-6. through six. Hear it clearly. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning my parents were faithful to follow the law. Of the people of Israel, I was a part of God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the better tribes, I was part of that. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, a zealous for for these things. So zealous, a persecutor of the church, who the Jewish people at that time thought were dangerous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. His testimony was amazing. This is Paul's way of saying, those who think that somehow they will live righteously in the flesh, somehow perform good enough of their own merit, no one should be more confident or qualified to that as I was. In all the things I just mentioned, but Paul has come to know something so important, so game-changing, it completely flips his world upside down. He came to realize that he was not righteous on his own. He couldn't be. No one can be. He came to see what he's saying in verse 1 through 3 here of Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in sin, not sick, but dead, devoted to the devil in his schemes, in our sin, only able to fulfill the desires of our flesh. Anything perceived to be good or righteous is still gross in sin because it's not done in faith under the glory of God. 
He says that clearly right in the middle of Philippians 3, 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's come to see that faith alone in Christ alone is the only hope for righteousness and new birth and satisfaction. Look at, how, look at all of that verse. Verse 9. Hebrew, uh, Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He came to see that his salvation, everything he worked to accomplish, all that he looked to for joy and identity, were rubbish in his self-pursuit of salvation as compared to knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. All of my resume is rubbish. Listen to his words. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever gain I had, which he says, if I'm standing over here, it was really legit. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Finally, he, he's so joyful to be in Christ and no longer be dead in sin that it is his joy, watch this, his privilege to share in suffering with Christ in this short life. To die to himself every day. To put away the longings of his flesh. And all of the fallen world's cultural norms and life priorities to reorient his grip through and through on the good things that God has called him to and entrusted to him. Why? Because life is in Christ. Not only now, but forevermore. Resurrected life is the best life. And so Paul understood this to such a degree that he says, I'll suffer joyfully in this time. Listen to his words three, in Philippians 3, 10-11, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul gets the fullness of what he was in his sin and what he deserved. He wants his hearers to get the fullness of the weight of it too. This is why we took so much time to work through these three verses. Because when you understand fully the bad news, the depth, the the enslavement, the wickedness of our sin apart from Christ, then, then the good news is so much sweeter. It's not just a passing thing. We hang our hat on and then go about our days like not much has really changed. It is so great. Life in Christ is so much better. The future resurrection is so much better we look forward to than anything we would desire in the temporary. I'll suffer. Let's go. To die to myself every day. To put that beautiful gospel on display. To trust all of my very best to God. Hear it again, Philippians 3, 7-8. through 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Unbeliever, repent and believe and be saved from God's eternal wrath and know life in Christ. And believer, may we never grow tired of joining Paul in a true willingness to suffer in this short time and a commitment to telling the story of where we were in sin and who we now are in Christ. The commitment to making disciples and fulfilling all that He's called us to be and to do. That many more would hear this gospel and in God's sovereign plan and time, repent and believe and be saved. Amen?
Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time, this beautiful time to come together and gather and pray and sing to you and study your word and break bread. Your God-ordained appointment that we would climb into these things and the layers that you want to do business in each of our lives, that you would not leave us the way we came in to leave us alone, that we would leave the same way, but that we do business with you. We would make appointments. We'd follow through. We would confess our sin. We would rally to not let this be this emotional moment of Sunday morning service, but it would carry over into our day and our week and beyond. That you are transforming us and molding us and shaping us. Our sin is gross. We have, we have nothing to offer for it but cling to Christ alone and the wonderful work that he did on the cross on our place. And it's for this good news we worship you now. In Jesus' name.